Well, good morning. So good to see you. Uh, would you open up your Bible with me to Mark chapter 12? You heard me right. Chapter 12. We're still in this chapter. It's been a few weeks now, and we're, as a church, walking through the gospel of Mark just little by little. And so we find ourselves with verse 35 of chapter 12 as our starting point today. Reminder, we won't have uh, the words on the screen. And so if you have a Bible, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some on the seats in front of you, or you could scroll along on your phone, whatever is easiest for you. And while you turn there, I want you to know that one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible comes from John chapter 21. Don't turn there now because you're finding Mark 12, but hear me out. John chapter 21, there's this interaction between Jesus and the Apostle Peter. And most people, even if they've had just a little bit of church experience, have heard about Peter, right? He's bold, he's impulsive, he's passionate. A lot of times he gets it wrong, but he, he provides all these opportunities for us to learn. And we see a lot of ourselves in Peter, do we not? So Peter infamously denies Jesus three times earlier in the gospel, uh, says that he doesn't even know Jesus. And in chapter 21, Jesus, after his resurrection, reinstates Peter and calls Peter to a leadership role in the church, tells him to feed God's sheep, and Jesus says to him, follow me. But as he's reinstating him, he also adds this little part about Peter's upcoming death. And he tells him that because you're following me, Peter, just a heads up, uh, uh, untimely, unfortunate death is coming your way. So be prepared. And as Peter's taking this in, I love his response because it teaches us a lot. Not because it's necessarily good, but it teaches us something. He, he looks around. Right? Jesus tells him, hey, follow me, and by the way, you're going to die. And he looks around at the other disciples, one of them in particularly, and he says to Jesus, Hey, what about him? Peter, follow me. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. You're going to die. What, what about him? Is he going to have the same fate as me, Jesus? Just, just want to make sure thing, things are equal here. Are they going to have it as bad as me? What, what about him? Are they going to face the same challenges or the same successes that, that I'll have? I thought, wow, how interesting and how relatable to us because I think we have a bit of what about him syndrome in our hearts or what about her syndrome where, where we see what God has called us to in life. We see that the gifts and the abilities he's given us, the opportunities he's given us, the people he's placed in our lives to love and rather than embracing fully the call of God for our lives, we say, well, what about him? Got what about her? Are they going to have it easier than me? Are they going to face the same struggles? Are they going to be a little bit more popular than me, have a bit more influence, a bit more comfort than me? Are they going to have the same struggles that I'll have? Oh, what about him? Before we go on, what about her? I think we all have this tendency to compare. And rather than fully embracing the call of God on our lives, we, we look around and say, well, what about them? And that kind of sets the stage for what we're going to see in Mark chapter 12. Jesus is going to warn us about the dangers of comparison and is going to call us to 
devotion to him personally. But before we get there, we start in verse 35. And one thing you'll notice is that from 35 till the end of the chapter, there's a couple different sections and different things going on. And so we're going to work through all of it, but you might get to the end of it and be like, wow, that, that was a lot of content and a lot of different themes going on. But we're going to do our best to walk through it and trust that God and uh, his spirit will uh, kind of let the parts that need to be heard by you really stand out and impact your heart. So let's jump in. Verse 35 says this. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, and then he quotes a psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him, the Messiah, Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. <clears throat> Notice with me, for a while, other people have been asking Jesus questions. And kind of the agenda has been driven by these concerns or these traps that people are bringing to Jesus, trying to make him look silly in public. But now Jesus is teaching in verse 35, and Jesus is setting the agenda. And what he wants us to do and the crowds in the text to do is to consider who he is. Not just to sit back and be amazed at his teachings and be wowed by his wisdom and the things that he has to say, but really to consider who is this Jesus? To consider his identity. And so what he does, you notice, he starts talking about the Messiah or the Christ. Maybe your translation says it that way. This was a figure that the people of God were waiting for. A leader, a savior, a, a king that would come and establish the kingdom of God and rescue God's people and restore peace and justice to all the earth. And so Jesus says in verse 35, he says, hey, this Messiah that we're waiting for, why do the teachers of the law say that he is the son of David? Okay, remember David? David and Goliath, stone, giant, guy dies. Or uh, David and Bathsheba, maybe you're familiar with King David. He became king and led the people of Israel to a time of stability and expansion and prosperity, and the people of God looked back to King David as this a fabulous leader, this golden era for the people of God. And so there was this thought that the Messiah to come will be from the line of David. There's all these promises that he will be a descendant of this great king. You see this most famously in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God says to David, he promises him to raise up a ruler from his line. One of David's descendants will be that Messiah, that king, that one who will restore all things in the world. But Jesus here says in verse 36, you notice, he says, hey, hey wait a second, wait a second. Verse 36, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, and then he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under 
your feet. Okay, this is one of those places in Scripture where we need a strong cup of coffee and to, to hone in, because it can be a little bit confusing exactly what is going on. Jesus is quoting Psalm 110 that was written by David. So this is David speaking in Psalm 110, and he notices, hey, David didn't say that the Messiah was his son, but he says the Messiah was his Lord. It says, David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, says, the Lord, God Almighty, said to my Lord, okay, a second figure in the psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, two lords referenced, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so he's saying, the second Lord that's referred to is the Messiah, this Davidic king to come that will rule with power and authority at the right hand of God and crush and conquer the enemies of God. And so, Jesus' question in verse 37. David himself calls him, the Messiah, Lord. How then can he be his son? A large crowd listened to him with delight. Let's close in prayer. Call it a day. Just kidding. But you might be thinking, what, what in the world is Jesus talking about? And, and why in the world uh, does it matter at all for me today and in my life? Here, here's this question. David refers to this Messiah as Lord. But people also believe that the Messiah would be David's son. And so how can the Messiah both be David's son, which seems to refer to someone kind of further down the uh, flow chart? someone with less authority and power? How can the Messiah both be the son of David, the human descendant of David, and also David's Lord, his authority, one with power? How can both of those things be true? And you notice Jesus doesn't answer the question for us. He just kind of throws that out there and calls people to kind of piece it together and to consider how this might all work. What does this tell us about the identity of Jesus, the Messiah? Because Jesus knows that both of these things are true. And he claims that he is the Messiah, the son of David. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He was a human being. Matthew chapter 1 actually goes to great lengths to trace the genealogy of Jesus, and show how his birth can be traced back to King David. So Jesus shows himself to be this human king and leader that the people of God have been waiting for. But is he merely a human king? Merely a human descendant of David? No, he's pointing to his identity as Lord, seated at the right hand of the Father, with power and glory. See, elsewhere in the New Testament, we see this idea unpacked most famously in John chapter 1 or Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus was not just a human being. No, he was not created like we were, but he's always existed. And so the church throughout history, and we today uphold that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. 
fully God and fully man. David's son and David's Lord. The theological term for that would be the hypostatic union. So at the next dinner party you're at, you can throw that out there and talk about the hypostatic union. No, which simply means that in the one person of Jesus Christ, there are two natures, divine and human, that are combined in the one person. And most early heresies or false teachings throughout the centuries of the church have denied one of those two. They'll say either Jesus was not really human fully or he wasn't really God. That's where we tend to go wrong. And today we do the same thing. Some of us are tempted to say, well, sure, I guess Jesus was, was God, but this whole being human thing, I mean, was that really real? I mean, did, did he really have, like a, again, like a human body and a, and a human mind, and he really can relate to our experience and our limitations and our need for sleep and our need for food and our temptations? I mean, can Jesus really relate to the human experience? Like, he, he seems so above all that. But no, he's fully human. And yet, we also have a tendency to say, well, okay, okay, I'm fine with Jesus being a human. Yeah, great, great teacher. Talked a lot about love. Had a big movement. People were following him. But, but he, wasn't, he wasn't really God. I mean, let's not get carried away. Maybe some of his, his followers kind of exaggerated a little bit and kind of ran with this idea a little bit too much. And so Jesus isn't really the authority of the world and the king of the universe. I mean, he's just a, a wise teacher. See, either way, we get into error and contradict what the scriptures proclaim, that both of those concepts are true, that Jesus is fully God, God himself, worthy of our authority, worthy of our worship, fully equal to God the Father in every way, very God of very God, and yet, He's fully man. He was a human being, fully human, can relate with our experience. The scriptures present both of those as true. And so Jesus wants us to see that he's not just some human king setting up some political kingdom as a descendant of David, but he's the king of kings, setting up the eternal kingdom of God, rescuing the world from sin and death. Make no mistake, this is the watershed question. Who is Jesus? Mormons will have a different answer. Those who follow Islam will have a different answer. Agnostics will have a different answer. Buddhists will have a different answer. Atheists will have a different answer. Who is Jesus? That's what it comes down to. Is he who he says he is? We, of course, here affirm that, well, he is who he says he is. He is the king of the world. He is the Messiah. He is God himself in human flesh. So, in light of this, Jesus goes on. Verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So as Jesus goes on, notice he's saying, watch out. 
watch out for these teachers of the law, these scribes, maybe your passage says. We talked about them a bit last week, this group of men that were responsible for teaching the scriptures and preserving the scriptures, these religious leaders. Jesus is saying, watch out for them. Why? In verse 38, what does it mention? They like to wear flowing robes. Don't trust anyone in a robe. Just kidding. That's not the point. No, Jewish teachers could identify themselves with a certain garb, certain type of robe, which was not very different from what other ancient teachers would do. Their Greek counterparts and so on would identify their role as a teacher. But these people seem to love that designation. They love to be seen in their robes. And it goes on in verse 38, they love to have honorable greetings in public. They like to be recognized. Verse 39, they want the important seats in the synagogues and the best seats at the banquets. See, in the ancient world, especially in the Middle East, the culture was very based around honor and public recognition public honoring of figures with authority. And so they would have special seats in the synagogues or at a banquet. The guest of honor would have these honorable places where they would be recognized as special, recognized as important. And Jesus is saying they love this. They love when they're publicly recognized this way. Verse 40, it adds that they make lengthy prayers for show. They're showing how devout and spiritual they are by how long they pray. And so what do you notice about all these things? These are all external, visible, public signs of recognition that draw attention to how important these men are. Not only that, but they show themselves to be spiritually bankrupt by how they treat widows. Look at verse 40. They devour their houses. We don't know exactly what they were doing, but somehow they were bullying, they were preying on these vulnerable widows, they were taking advantage of them financially for their own gain. And Jesus says punishment or more severe judgment is coming their way because God does not take that lightly. And so think about the context here. A few weeks ago, we talked about the great command, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And what are these men doing? They're doing the exact opposite. Rather than loving God with all that they have, they're loving public recognition and the praise of men. And rather than loving their neighbor as themselves, they are taking advantage of vulnerable widows. So Jesus is saying, watch out for them. Don't be fooled by appearances. And watch out for this attitude cropping up in your own life. This attitude in your own heart that loves to look a certain way. I mean, if we think that people in the first century had to be warned about the dangers of looking at appearances, how much more? Do we today need to be reminded of the dangers of merely looking at appearances? How often do we measure our own worth 
or the worth of someone else based on external things that we can see. For us, it's not usually about wearing long robes or demanding formal greetings and railies or making super long prayers, although maybe some of us could pray a little shorter prayers, just saying. Uh, although maybe, yeah. So, but for us, it's the title before our name, maybe. Maybe the corner office that we occupy. Maybe the, the leadership role that we have in a community organization. We love being up front. We love being on stage. We love the number of likes or shares that our most recent social media post gathers. We feed on that, especially in the church. The title of pastor, the role of small group leader, the esteemed Bible teacher in the community that people go to for answers. Now, it's not bad to be treated with respect. It's not bad to be honored or even recognized where appropriate, but Jesus is saying, watch out when you start to crave that treatment. Watch out when you start to feed on that applause and soak up and love the public recognition. Be careful. I think we've all felt this to some degree, right? That's why it feels so good to be noticed feels so good to get that pat on the back, and it can feel so bad to be overlooked, unnoticed, unrecognized, or forgotten. So it's one thing to hear the words of Jesus and say, hey, don't do that. Be careful of that attitude, which is true. <clears throat> but let's take a second and wonder together, what's driving that attitude? What is it in us that craves the praise of other people, and the recognition publicly from other people. Brene Brown is a sociologist and researcher and has done some great work in this area. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with all of her conclusions, but she has some fabulous work studying shame and vulnerability and what's really internally going on for people and motivating us. And what she says is really insightful in this area. She says, sometimes when we think about our need for praise or our need for public recognition, we just assume that it's because everyone's a narcissist and everyone thinks they're so great and everyone's just running around and look at me and posting about themselves and look at my life and look at how if everyone just listened to my ideas, then the world would be a better place. And everyone is just so self-absorbed thinking that they're so great. And so that's why they talk about themselves and post about themselves, and it's all about them. But what she's found in her research is that that's not actually the depth of what's going on. That actually, when we see that sort of behavior in people or in ourselves, the drive to be noticed, to love public recognition and praise, to be Notice, it's not because we think we are so great, but it's actually the opposite. It shows our radical insecurity. It shows how we are unsure that we are truly loved or worthy of love. 
shows that we aren't so sure that God accepts us and loves us. And so, in order to fill our hearts and fill our tank, if you will, we need to receive that approval and recognition from people because we're not so sure we have it from God. And so the more we post about ourselves and make things about us, the more we show how insecure we really are. But do you notice how sneaky this is? You notice how in the text, these are teachers of the law, these are scribes, these are religious men. Sometimes it's so hard to see through that or to to criticize that because it's all cased in this really nice spiritual wrapping paper. They just love serving. They're such a godly person. How could I say anything negative about that? I just want to serve the Lord. But sometimes in church world, it's easy for us to rather than being motivated by a genuine love for the Lord, we're motivated by a desire to be seen and noticed and up front. That's why our number one value as a church staff, as a board, we've talked about this, is Humility. Humility. The conviction that it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about the Lord. And so, what's the cure for this? If we are doing what Jesus warns us against doing, how do we, how do we stop? How do we keep people from, from living this way? Some would say, we just need to cut people down to size. Remind people how small they are, that they're not such hot stuff. Bring them down to earth. Maybe that's part of the conversation. But think about it. If the issue is they feel small and insecure, then the solution is probably not to make them feel smaller and more insecure. Rather, we need to remind people of the gospel. We need to remind people and ourselves of the gospel, which tells us what? Yes, we are more sinful than we realize, but we are also more loved than we ever dreamed. The gospel tells us that in Christ, God has loved us, sacrificed himself for us. Though we were sinners, Christ died for us. He went to the cross. He took our sin, our shame, our punishment for sin, the judgment and condemnation that sin deserved. He took and bore himself so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be freed, so that we could be reconciled to God and adopted as sons and daughters of God. And so if we truly put our faith in Christ and we embrace what he has done for us, then don't you see how that will radically change our insecurity and will instead be secure and grounded in the love of God? that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ, can bolster our fragile hearts so we won't need the opinions and the applause of other people because our identity is in Christ and it's secure. Tim Keller put it this way, if you have the love of the king, it doesn't matter what the peasants think of you. And you can see how that sounds a little derogatory to the peasants, but really, if you have the love of the king which we have in Christ. What does it matter what the peasants think of you? It gives us great freedom, great freedom to live for the Lord. Jesus continues. The third section of the text, verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. 
Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small coins, small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So notice how chapter 12 ends. We have this negative example. Don't be like the scribes, the teachers of the law, and their thirst and hunger for public recognition and the praise of men. Instead, look at this widow. She's the example we are to follow. This is what, verse 41, we see plenty of rich people around her throwing large amounts of money into the treasury, and probably the coins are clinging and clanging as they go down into the bin. But Jesus singles out this woman in verse 42, doesn't he? This poor widow who puts in two very small copper coins. Just a few cents. He says, what this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Her offering, which on a horizontal level looks completely insignificant, was actually worth more to God than all the others. I mean, her donation couldn't even have bought a shake at In-N-Out Burger, and yet here Jesus singles it out as the most valuable to God. Turns out something like this, or a $20 donation might be more costly to someone than a $200 donation from another. Why? He says, verse 44, out of her poverty, she gave everything. She truly obeyed the command to love God with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. She humbly offered to God all that she had, all that she had to live on in faith and in trust. And so we see that it's not the noticeable, showy teachers of the law that are pleasing to God. It's this humble, overlooked widow that is pleasing to God. The very type of person who the others were taking advantage of. So in all of this, Jesus is putting these two together for us to help us see, be careful not to measure the wrong things. Isn't it so easy for us to take a look around and and measure things by the external things that we see or the perceived success of others, and we end up getting discouraged because our lives don't look the way someone else's does? Hear me. Some of us here today walk around feeling like failures, feeling like failures before God because our life doesn't look how someone else's does. Our influence is not as great as someone else's is. Our impact is not at the level that someone else's is. Someone else has a bigger platform, more visibility. People look to them for answers rather than us, and we feel like failures because we're not being used by God in the same way that other people are. But notice from this text, it's not about what someone else does with what they have. What should concern us is what will we do with what we have? What will you do with what God has given you? The gifts you have, the abilities you have, 
the people in your life, the sphere of influence that you have, how will you use it for God's glory and God's purposes? This reminds me of the Old Testament passage, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, also with King David. King David was about to be anointed king, but Samuel was trying to find the next king, and he was looking at all of David's brothers, and David was out in a field, and no one even noticed him, and they thought it would be one of the other guys, but Samuel then speaks, and it says, the Lord, excuse me, this was said to Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so Jesus is saying, I don't want you to look at the outward appearances of all these really spiritual people around you. I want you to look actually instead at the devotion of this widow. And I want you to likewise be devoted to me, even if it's overlooked, even if it's in obscurity, even if on a horizontal level it doesn't seem like much. Give what you have for me. Devote yourself to me. Don't compare yourself to others. Back to our friend Peter in John 21. Remember Jesus, follow me. You're going to die. What about him? Jesus responds there in verse 22. What about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. If I want him to remain alive and thrive and prosper until I return while you have to die, what is that to you? You have to follow me. And so if I want to do X, Y, or Z with Joe and Susie and use them in this way, what is that to you? You follow me. I have a a call on you. And for your life, will you embrace it? What is it to you what they do? You serve me. You give me what you have. Devote yourself to me. See, when we stand before God one day, he's not going to ask what Joe or Sally or the other disciples did with what they had. He's going to ask us, what did you do with what I gave to you? And so we can look to this widow in verse 44 and see, she gave all she had to the Lord. And likewise, we should do the same. We have an opportunity to celebrate communion this morning together as we come to the table. Um, We recognize that our commitment to the Lord, to give to him our whole lives, is only possible because he first gave himself for us. And so we look to the cross and the broken body of Jesus and his shed blood for us, and we remember what he's done. See, we take the elements that signify what took place on the cross. Jesus spoke of this the night he was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after supper, said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so together we can come to the table And remember Jesus' sacrifice for us, that on the cross he paid for our sins, so that through faith in him we would be washed and cleansed and reconciled to God. 
We practice an open table here, which means even if you're visiting, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we invite you to participate with us. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're not really sure if you're following Jesus, then we encourage you just to uh, remain seated and just consider what we've been talking about so far this morning. Now, also, you'll notice that uh, we just had communion a week or two ago, and here we are doing it again. Normally, we do it once a month, but we're going to start going forward doing it twice a month, just so we have more opportunity to, to make sure that the cross and the gospel is central to our worship. And so the first and third Sundays of the month, we're going to be celebrating communion. So here we are on the first Sunday of the month. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for uh, your word that convicts us, that challenges us, that comforts us. And Jesus, we thank you for your death on the cross in our place. That you took our sin, you bore our sins so that we would not have to. So that we could be forgiven, cleansed, freed, given new life and reconciled to you. Thank you. We remember you today and we celebrate what you've done for us. And we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.